In 2 Samuel chapter 13, if you'll join me there as we left off last time sort of in the middle of chapter 13 and certainly in these sections looking at things that are uh, no doubt difficult to kind of have to process and, and work our way through, God giving to us just some of the raw realities of uh, what happens in the sinfulness of humanity and Certainly in these chapters here in front of us, we left off last time with a a real catastrophe that happened within David's own family life amongst his own children where uh, one of his uh, own sons, uh, we're told Amnon, began to have an undue and unhealthy affection towards one of his own sisters, Tamar, and uh, ultimately... uh, contrived a plan where he would allow himself to have the opportunity to have access to be alone with her uh, and then forcibly took advantage of her sexually and raped his own sister. Uh, Of course, Absalom, uh, who was uh, one of the other brothers, uh, seemed to have perceived something like this was going to happen and as uh, Amnon took advantage of his sister and uh, raped her and, and then afterwards it tells us as soon as he did that, that Uh, In the same way, it says in verse 15 of chapter 13 uh, that he had this exceeding interest in what he thought was love, which was only lust. It says then in verse 15, Amnon hated her exceedingly with hatred, but he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. And Amnon said, arise, be gone. And so uh, just again took advantage of her selfishly, indulged uh, his sexual fulfillment, and then disgraced her and sent her away. She then left the house, of course, completely dishonored, having lost her virginity to her own brother, not only rape, but incest. And so, again, we begin to see some of the real unpleasant fruit. And some of this, no doubt, we cannot deny, stems from the fact of some of David's own poor choices earlier in his own life. Again, we need to remind ourselves, uh, David even just initially going outside of the original boundaries of God's design for just one man and one woman, had David taken one wife to himself as God told us to, as his design was, certainly some of these things and some of the dysfunction that happened within this family would have never happened. We need to remember David at this point has multiple wives, so he has children from multiple different wives. Uh, The polygamy no doubt contributed to certainly difficult and at times uh, challenging dynamics. You're talking about a group of kids who have a bunch of different moms in a household and are half brothers and half sisters. And so some of this defunction certainly arising out of that. And of course, David's own struggles with not being able to regulate his own sexual passions. And no doubt his sons seeing some of these things and being aware of some of those realities justifying in their own hearts that they had the right in some ways, the entitlement to pursue some of the same patterns. Uh, that they saw their own father uh, being in some ways engaged in. Of course, this is always the problem, whether it's in good fruit and good seeds that we sow by our patterns and lifestyles as parents, or whether it's in the poor choices and the sinful, maybe lifestyles or decisions that we indulge in. The unfortunate thing is that does have an influence on our children. Now, I'm not saying it has to justify that our kids follow in the same paths, 
but certainly it does have an effect and an influence. And so David certainly was a great king, loved the Lord, a man after God's own heart, but it seems David certainly uh, had some real dysfunction uh, in his personal life. And though he was a great king, it doesn't seem that David was the greatest father. Uh, and David doesn't seem to have been someone who ruled his own home very well. And it led to a lot of hurt and heartache. And here in the midst of chapter 13, we now find ourselves on the heels of another tragedy. One of David's, as I said, own sons has raped one of his daughters. Amnon has raped Tamar. And it tells us that as she now put ashes on her head and went back weeping bitterly, crying, grieving over what has happened to her. We left off last week in verse 21 where word of this tragedy comes to David, who's the king and the father of these children to which this tragedy has just happened amongst. It says, verse 21, that when King David heard these things, when report came, that he was very angry. Now, justifiably so. Uh, this is righteous indignation. Something has happened, not only that is criminal from a moral and civil standpoint that somebody had raped a woman in the nation of Israel, but to make this worse, uh, this has happened within David's own family. This is one of his own sons who's uh, sexually abused in an incestuous way, one of his own daughters, one of the princesses of Israel, one of his own daughters in his household. And David's very angry, but as we said last time as we left off, though he is angry, he never does anything about the issue. He never deals with the sin as a father. He never brings any correction or rebuke to his own child who is guilty of sinful and immoral actions. So he neglects his role as a father and then even as a king and just as a leader in general. He does nothing to address the sin. He does nothing to address the wrongdoing. He sort of just gets upset and angered and stirred by it. But then he never follows through and deals with the issue and undealt with sin always just festers and like a cancerous tumor it just grows and spreads and expands and it, it causes further damage in other areas and that's exactly what we're going to see going forward here so verse 22 tells us that absalom remember who was the full brother of tamar they shared both the same mother and david as their father absalom remember recognized we saw in verse 20 right away when tamar came back with her clothes torn and ashes on her head grieving and weeping right away the first words out of his mouth was it, it was amnon wasn't it? He, he seemed to have perceived that something was already going on and right away he discerned that amnon their half-brother had taken advantage of her so verse 22 says absalom spoke to his brother amnon neither good nor bad there was just a a severance of communication no longer was there any dialogue at all between them. He didn't say anything hurtful or, or angry towards him. But by the same token, he didn't communicate with him at all. There was just a total silence. <coughs> Excuse me. From that day forward, there was a total severance of relationship and communication. For Absalom, it says, verse 22, hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. So rightfully so at this point. Absalom, as any big brother would be, I mean, his sister has just been taken advantage of. She's been raped and to make it worse by one of their own family members. He is intensely angry 
about what has happened. Now, remember, we saw in the prior verses that he told his sister when she first came to him, look, you stay here in my house and recover. And he says, let's not make an issue of this. And I think because Absalom is thinking, no doubt, dad will deal with this. I mean, this is horrific what has happened, and it's not our place to take matters into our own hands. So dad is the king, and rather than make a public scandal out of this, this is a messy situation. Let's just wait for dad to exercise his proper authority, not only as the head of our home and the head of our family, but more than that, as the king of Israel to enact judgment civilly against someone who's done this because a rapist, by according to the law of God, should have either been excommunicated or potentially executed for what he had done in this criminal act. So Absalom's waiting upon David to do something, thinking his father would. But in the meantime, the hatred and the animosity in his heart is just growing and growing. And you can see here this unaddressed sin and anger has developed into severe hatred. And and Absalom just really at this time, we're going to see for two years, just completely pulls away from relationship altogether. And he pulls back. There's no longer any communication. And it says, verse 23, that it came to pass after two full years. So so put that into your mind there. For two years, this family continues to function, yet they've never addressed this major elephant in the room here, right? I mean, this is a pretty, pretty serious issue that's taken place among this family here. And yet... Again, it told us in the prior chapters, remember Mephibosheth was brought in to eat at the king's table, remember Jonathan's son, with all the rest of the king's family. So again, here they're having meals as a family. They're doing things. They're still doing normal family life, normal palace functions. I mean, just uh, all these things are still happening. They're going through all the routine and the dynamics. And yet all the while, there is this big, awkward, ugly elephant that's hogging up the room constantly. It's very obvious. You can't hide the fact when you have two brothers who for two years are not even speaking to one another. They're around each other. They're amongst one another. All the other siblings can sense it. The father can sense it. And everybody's just kind of winking an eye and ignoring the fact that something's not being addressed. And there's this hatred and this root of bitterness that's just growing deeper and deeper in the heart of Absalom. And the sad thing, as we're going to see, is as Absalom is just getting more and more hateful and angry and nothing is being done, what he's ultimately going to do is plot to just take revenge himself. And he's going to just take matters into his own hand because at the end of two years, he kind of comes to the conclusion, well, listen, if my father doesn't have the backbone to deal with this, Somebody needs to. And so now he takes matters into his own hands, which isn't necessarily right because he's going to violate the law himself and two wrongs don't make a right, certainly. But he now is going to take matters into his own hands in his emotional charged condition and really just his impatience that nothing has been done after two full years. So he now plots out really the premeditated murder of his own brothers and this is what we brother as a revenge act we read here in verse 23 it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shearers 
in Baal Hazur. Now, again, sheep shearing season was kind of like harvest day for those who farmed the land. It was a time of great celebration when you would shear the sheep. Uh, you would basically take the, the benefit and the profits from the herd that you had been tending. So it was a very festive time, a time of celebrating and feasting, just like on the harvest day when you brought in the crops. So Absalom, it says had sheep shears in Baal Hazur, which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. He's going to have a celebration, a, a party is at sheep shearing time. And Absalom came to the king and said to his father, kindly note, your servant has sheep shears. Please, he says, let the king and his servants go with your servant. But Absalom, or excuse me, but the king said to Absalom, no, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you so he says listen i appreciate the invite but he says look for you to to tend to all of us and myself and all the the royal children that's just going to be a financial burden it's going to cut into your profits and so david basically respectfully declines the offer to participate in this celebration at sheep shearing time he says thank you but but we don't want to take away from your profits but then he urged him but he would not go and he blessed him. You, you do what you're going to do, but no need for us all to participate with you. Now, we have to wonder, is part of that because there's a hesitancy in David's heart still to have the family together any more than necessary because it's always such an awkward time. And every time they get together, David's thinking, oh, here we go. We have to do this again. <laughs> this same awkward family routine. And, and who doesn't to some degree probably know what that's like? on a Christmas or a Thanksgiving, you know, the, the dysfunction in some of our families. And it's, you, you kind of get together and you go through the motions and you do the thing, but all the while, everybody's thinking, this is just as awkward as me as it is for you. Hurry up and open your gift so we can leave. You know, it's just, and, and, and this is kind of this times 300% more intense. So David here says, yeah, you know, that, that sounds good, but why don't you just with your workers and sheep shears, you know, have your own feast. Thank you for the invite and the Lord bless you in, in what you're going to do. But Absalom said, well, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. See, he has a plot that he's working on here. And the king said to him, oh, why should he go with you? Again, no doubt there's this level of suspicion. What do you want Amnon to go with you for? But Absalom urged him, so he let Amnon and all the king's sons, notice all the sons, go with him. So again, Amnon's been working, or Absalom's been working on this plot to entrap and to murder, as we're going to see Amnon as a form of revenge. David, it seems, is always trying to, to be cautious and dance around this. Ultimately, he says, you know, what, what do you want Am Amnon to go for? And, 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 and no doubt there was a part of this where to some degree it's, you know, this is an important occasion. So to make some appearance from the royal family, it would seem the appropriate thing. So David says, listen, OK, I, I, I concede I'm not going to come. But how about all the sons go? And no doubt in some degrees, David's probably thinking, well, I mean, it has been two years. I mean, and he's never taken revenge on him yet in two years. We've had lots of family functions. And if I send all the sons, I mean, certainly if all the sons are there, they're not going to be alone. Things will probably be okay. And, and there'll be a level of safety, even though I'm not there. My supervision isn't involved. But uh, Amnon uh, certainly was in for something that Absalom had planned. And it didn't matter how many sons were there. Look at verse 28. It says, now Absalom had commanded his servants saying to them, watch now, 
when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, that is, once he starts to celebrate and the wine starts to cause him to lose his judgment, he starts to get friendly, he kind of lets his guard down a little bit, and this is what happens when somebody starts to become under the influence, their guard goes down, they're maybe not as good in their judgment or their perception, so he's thinking, well, wait till he gets a little vulnerable, and he starts to let his guard down, he's not paying attention as much, because I'm sure there was probably always a little bit of an, an edginess there between Abnon and Absalom he probably was always kind of looking over his shoulder knowing what he had done in raping Absalom's sister and his own sister so he says wait till he's beginning to get married and then when I say to you strike Amnon and then kill him do not be afraid have I not commanded you be courageous and valiant so he basically puts out the murder plot to his servants and he says look wait till he's beginning to relax and starting to enjoy himself and then when he's not suspecting it when I tell you the time is right I want you to kill him and put him to death notice he doesn't kill him himself he uses his servants in an indirect way to try and put him to death hmm, doesn't that sound familiar how did David kill Uriah <laughs> he didn't kill him himself he used his servants in a secondary indirect way to do his dirty work and to put, remember, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to death out on the battlefield through Joab and using a plot to make it happen to try and cover his tracks. And now look at the fruit of the same kind of things. Again, it's almost manifesting itself now in his own children's lives because now Absalom is going to put to death his brother. He's going to murder him, not, in, not directly with his own hands, but he's the one that's premeditated and determined it to happen. So verse 29, the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. So at some point in the course of the celebrating, they murdered him, took his life, and then all the king's sons, again, this must have happened to some public extent, realize, oh my goodness, one of our brothers has just been murdered here at this festive celebration. Each one of them got on his mule and fled. Now, I don't know how fast donkeys go when they're in a hurry, but that... <laughs> I bet those, those, those mules were kind of like horses that day. That's, that's what you rode on and in, in royal times. You know, to ride on the, the mule from the palace was uh, looked nice, but it probably didn't go as fast as they wanted it to when something like that was going on. So they're fleeing now for their lives because they're thinking, wait, wait a minute, you know, is this, some, is this some plot? Are they trying to, you know, execute all the king's sons and the royal family? So they're all just in a panic because Amnon has just been murdered in cold blood fleeing for their lives and it came to pass while they were on their way that news came back to David before the rest of the children arrived and the word came saying Absalom has killed all the king's sons and not one of them is left so the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the ground and all his servants stood by him with their clothes torn so take notice what happens here Something happens, true, something did happen at that festive celebration, and something bad. However, word gets back to David before they actually get back, and notice, bad news travels fast, doesn't it? But do you notice also that the facts always get construed to? And there's always an exaggeration of what really happened. Look, it's bad. One son was murdered. But when the word gets back, it's always misconstrued fact and it's always exaggerated way beyond what really did happen. All the king's sons have been murdered. 
And this is so like human nature in what happens. Something happens, something sinful, something wrong, something goes wrong. But boy, it is amazing how quick bad news travels and how the facts always get construed and how it's always somehow exaggerated when the story first comes out. And things are inflated in a lot of ways. This is just sort of the, the nature of humanity. And this is why the Bible tells us in Proverbs you know, th- that a man seems right until his neighbor comes and cross-examines him. Again, always remember, there are three sides to every story. There's this person's side, there's this person's side, and then there's the truth. So whenever you listen to something, always be aware of that. Whenever anything happens, and things do happen, but whenever anything happens, there's always three sides to every story, and it's the right side, the true story that you're after, not one person's or the other. So this horrible news comes back. David instantaneously struck with grief, as any father would be. All, he just heard all of his children have been murdered. He falls on the ground, tearing his garments as an act of grief there. But then Jonadab, the son of Shemia, now remember, we don't like this guy. He's the one that encouraged Amnon to come up with a secretive plot to be alone with Tamar to be able to rape her. Now here he is again, seems this guy's always positioning. He comes and to David and answers and says, oh, let not my Lord suppose they've killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom, boy, he had no problem right away ratting out who did it. By the command of Absalom, this deed has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. In essence, it's almost like he's reproving David, say, David, are you kidding me? From the day he first forced his sister to be with him sexually and and took advantage of her, everybody knows that this is what Absalom's intentions were. You were the only one that's been ignoring it and doing nothing about it. And it's almost as if he's kind of rubbing into a little bit to David the fact that, look, the reason this happened is because you sat on this and done nothing for two years. And that's why this worst thing has now happened. Now a murder's happened. Now one of your own sons has murdered another one of your sons. And so he says, only one is dead. Absalom has, in a premeditated way, taken the life of his brother. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king take this thing to heart. Well, that's kind of a shallow thing to say when you hear one of your sons has murdered one of your other sons. To think that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. And Absalom fled, and the young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked, and there many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said to the king, Look, the king's sons are coming. There he goes, evidence, David. Here's the rest of your sons, just as your servant said. So it was, as soon as they had finished speaking, that the king's sons indeed came, and they lifted up their voice and wept, and also the king and all his servants wept bitterly. So the family now gathers around. They begin to grieve over this tragedy. Not only has one of their brothers now just been murdered, but to make it worse, it was one of the own siblings who murdered one of their brothers in cold blood verse 37 but absalom fled and went to talmai the son of amahud king of geshur now where absalom goes is about 80 miles away he flees because he realizes what he's just done now and he's facing the judgment of a capital crime, murder, and worse, murdering one of his own family members on top of committing murder. So if he flees now about 80 miles, where he goes to in Geshur, to Talmai, who was the king of that area, is actually his maternal grandfather. So he flees, realizes things aren't good in, in my immediate family, I need to get out of here. So now he flees, 
like typical, you know, awkward dynamics of, you know, dysfunctional family. He now flees and I'm going to stay with grandpa. And so now he runs 80 miles away. He goes and stays with his grandpa, hoping he'll find some sanctuary and safety there. And David says, mourn for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there for three years. So now for another three years, Absalom is out of the territory since this murder has happened. And King David, it says, longed to go to Absalom for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. Now, certainly I think a couple of lessons in the midst of these kind of horrific uh, you know, events that took place, the dysfunction and the, the family life of these kind of things, I, I think that we can draw from it. A few things I would say by way of application would be this. First of all, when offenses happen, and they will, but when offenses happen, shutting down and pulling away is not the right solution. That's what happened, remember, between Absalom and Amnon. Okay, Amnon did something that caused offense to his brother. He raped his sister. That's a pretty serious, sinful offense to hurt and offend another person. And there was a genuine anger and animosity, which then stemmed into hatred and bitterness and not even speaking. And, and remember, they pulled away. And for two years, they didn't even speak to one another. And you see what it contributed to. And it's just a reminder that, look, when offenses happen, sins, offenses, we hurt, offend one another, shutting down and pulling away is not the right solution. Cutting off communication and no longer interacting is never the healthy way to resolve things. It just causes more bitterness and animosity and more emotion to be fueled in the situation. And I think another thing we learn from this, secondly, is this, is whether it's impatience or strong feelings about some matter, it's never wise to take matters into your own hands and to think somehow that you can press beyond proper boundaries and just fix the situation yourself. That's what Absalom did. His own impatience that his father didn't do anything for two years and his strong feelings about the situation of what he felt was right and should be done, that impatience and those strong feelings about a matter caused him to take matters into his own hands and to press beyond proper boundaries and that caused a real mess and further catastrophes. And we have to be careful because sometimes we may feel very strongly about some situation. Maybe it's not something as intense as this, but we start to get impatient that something's not being done about it, that someone else isn't doing what they should do or something's not coming to pass that we think should come to pass or something that we want to be addressed in a certain way. And then we make the mistake of taking matters into our own hands and we're going to force it. And we're going to make it come to pass our way because nobody else is. And, and look, whenever we take matters into our own hands, remember, we're in essence taking them out of God's hands. And that's usually not a good idea. And a lot of times it leads to us making our own sinful and foolish mistakes as Absalom did actually murdering his brother, which didn't solve the situation. I think another lesson that can be learned from this chapter here is, is again, never just believe the first story as I alluded to earlier. Always get the facts. Don't just believe the first thing you hear and first report. That's never good. And, and, and I think one of the things we learn as well from Absalom, and we're going to see as we go into chapter 14, how his mistake after his failure causes further repercussions in his own life is this, is when we have sinned, 
when we've done something wrong, whether it's to this degree or it's murdering our own brother, whatever it is, listen, when we have sinned and done something wrong, it is not the right thing to flee and to run from it. When you do something wrong, when I sin, when I fail, it is not right to flee, it is right to face it. To face what you've done, to own up to it. Absalom does something horrific. He murders his brother and then he flees. He flees 80 miles away as if somehow to flee 80 miles away is somehow going to make what he did go away. It doesn't. So when you and I do the wrong things, don't run from your error. Don't flee from your sin. Face it. Face it, own it, address it. That is the quickest way to bring God's forgiveness and healing and to make the best out of even sinful and unhealthy things. Another application I would say that we can draw from this is what we see David failing in at the end of the chapter, which is this. David, for three years, it says, longed to go to Absalom. In other words, for three years in David's heart, there was something in his heart that was saying, listen, I need to, I need to address this with my son I need, I need to talk to him about, first of all, what happened between Amnon and Tamar, and now what's happened between him. And for three years, David wanted to do the right thing. It says for three years he longed to go to Absalom, but he never did. In other words, the point being this, for three years he knew the right thing that he ought to do, and he just never acted on it. He just never acted upon it. He remained passive. And can I remind you, the Bible tells us in James 4.17, he who knows the good thing that he ought to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And sometimes when we know that we ought to do something, to delay in doing it or to not do it, when we know what we ought to do, whatever that may be, the Bible says if you know the right thing you should do in a situation, but you, you hesitate or refuse to act upon it and do it, God says that's sin. That's disobedience. And maybe that is in relation to a, rela a relationship thing, like in this situation. Maybe that means going and talking to someone. Hey, we've been estranged from one another. Something's been damaged in our relationship. Something's happened, and, and I know I ought to go address it. I ought to go deal with it. And, and to delay and to not do it is wrong. And look, it's not only wrong, it's damaging because when they... And we, as we see here, leave something unresolved and unaddressed. All it's going to do, we're going to see in this story, is it's just going to cause further walls of separation to go up between the two of them. And it's just going to cause fuel to a fire as the result of the unresolved things. And it's just going to cause more and more bitterness and greater walls of separation. This is why it's so important, especially when it's a relational thing, to do the right thing. What David could not bring himself to do, listen, was push back, push past the human awkwardness in his own emotions. Hey, if I'm David, I don't think I want to talk about why did... One of my daughters get raped by one of my sons. Why did one of my sons murder one of my other sons? I mean, that's probably a little bit awkward to talk about. It's probably a little bit awkward to deal with. And listen, when things happen among us as human beings, sometimes it gets awkward. And it's awkward to talk about something that happened. But we have to learn as people that it is more important to push past, past the awkwardness of our emotions and our thoughts and feelings and to say, listen, it's not about my comfort. It's about what's right here. 
And so maybe it is an awkward conversation. Maybe it is an awkward thing, to, but that doesn't mean that we ignore it and we push it aside. That doesn't solve anything. And David here, instead of pushing past the awkwardness and working towards resolution, just sits there passive and it just causes the, the animosity and bitterness in, in Absalom's heart to grow and grow and grow. And he gets even more angry at David because he basically feels like on top of not dealing with it, now I did what I felt like was the justifiable thing. He deserved to die for what he did. And now my father is not even speaking to me or addressing me and he's basically written me off as a son. So he just becomes more angry and a wedge develops further between them. And that's always what happens. Well, notice chapter 14 opens by saying Joab, the son of Zariah, David's general, he perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. So he could, he could sense that David was mourning over the loss now really of two sons by not addressing this for three full years. So Joab sends it to Koah. And he brought from there a wise woman. The idea is someone who was crafty. She was, you know, she was sharp on her feet. He's going to use her now as his instrument to try and work a plan to put uh, David and Absalom back together. So he says to this woman, please, I have a, an assignment for you. Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel and do not anoint yourself with oil. Act like a woman who has been mourning a long time for someone who's died. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. So Joab's got this plot in mind. Again, now he's going to take matters into his own hands. This is what everybody starts doing all of a sudden. So Joab says, I got to come up with a plan. David's not acting on what's right. I can tell he's mourning over his son. This is bad for the kingdom. Who's going to be the next prince of Israel if David dies? He's in his 60s. I mean, we need another prince of Israel here to take over the kingdom. So he goes and he, he, he hires out this woman who was sharp and wise on her feet that he could kind of be a play actor. And he says, look, I want you to pretend like you've just been grieving over death and here's a story I want you to go tell David and use this parable to bring about my plan. So he gives her this story. So it says, verse four, the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king and fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, help, O king. And the king said, what troubles you? And she answered, indeed, I am a widow. My husband is dead. Now your servant had two sons and the two fought with each other in the field and there was no one to part them. And the one struck the other and killed him. So she's a widow. She has no husband. She had two sons. They got in a dispute. And sadly, one of the sons became so angry, he actually murdered his own brother. And now the whole family, verse 7, has risen up against your maidservant. And they said, deliver him who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed. And we will destroy the heir also. So they would extinguish my ember that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remembrance. So she says, David, I have a dilemma. This has happened. My one son has murdered the other son in a fit of rage. But she says, this is going to be horrible for me. I need intervention here because if they put to death my son who murdered his brother, then the only heir of our family is put to death. Our family name is going to be lost. Now, that was huge in Israel to maintain their lineage and all those kind of things. On top of that, without a husband and without any sons as a widow, that jeopardized her survival. That was There was no welfare system or social security. Your family took care of you. And as a widow or an orphan, you were very vulnerable to being able to survive. So she's saying, I only have one son left. And now they're saying, turn him over to the authorities 
He needs to die for what he's done. She, she says, you need to spare my son in this situation. So the king said to the woman, go to your house and I'll give orders concerning you. So a typical you know, kind of political, let me think about that and I'll get back to you. We'll have someone call you, he says. You just go home and, and I'll send some word eventually. Well, she's wise. That's why Joab contracted her. She's not going to settle for that. That's not what they're after. So the woman said to him, my Lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and my father's house and the king and his throne be guiltless. So the king said, whoever says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall not touch you anymore. Third persistence. She said, please let the king remember the Lord, your God, and do not permit the avenger of blood. Remember, that was how if a family member was put to death. You, one of your close blood relatives would typically have an avenger of blood and that avenger would go and basically take the life as a form of retribution on behalf of your family. So this is what's being referred to. He says, do not permit, she's saying as the king, the avenger of blood to destroy anymore lest they destroy my son. And he said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground so basically what happens David being moved with emotion by the persistence of this woman and the plight that she's in as a widow he feels sorry for her and he thinks this is just horrible and because she's persistent and she continues to pressure him and pressure him he just makes sort of a, a, a quick decision and as a king he pardons her son for the crime of the murder that he's committed against his own brother. And he says there in verse 12 to her, excuse me, verse 11, as the Lord lives, a judicial declaration from the king can't be reversed. Not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. In other words, I grant him clemency. He is free from the crime that he has committed. No one can take his life. I offer him by judicial decree as the king of Israel that he is free and pardoned from his crime. So what David does here is, is he allows his emotions basically to sway his decision and he makes a decision out of emotion that contradicts what the law of God says. And, and this is always usually never a good thing when we let our emotions drive what our decisions are rather than looking to the basis of, well, what does the word of God say? Not just what feels right in this emotional situation or I'm being pressured to make some quick decision. Well, David now grants this decision. He's pardoned of the murder that he's committed. Verse 12, now, now David has just set himself up for exactly what Joab and this woman were looking for. Here comes the application to the parable now. This is all fake story, remember. Therefore, the woman said, please, let your maidservant speak another word to my lord, the king. And he said, say on. So the woman said, why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty in that the king does not bring his banished one home again, referring to Absalom. So she says, David, with all due respect as the king of Israel, you're a hypocrite. You just made a decree to pardon my son, her imaginary son, who committed this imaginary murder against his own brother and I've asked you to pardon him for his crime and to restore him and to protect him. And you said, okay, I grant him pardon and forgiveness and he can be restored back. And she says, why would you be willing to do that for me? 
And you won't do that for the next crowned prince of Israel. You won't even do this for your own son. Your own son for three years has been banished and you won't forgive him, pardon him, talk to him, bring him home, anything. So she says, you're a hypocrite, David. You're guilty of the very thing that you just decided. And worse, this isn't just any person. This is someone who has an effect upon all of the people of God. For we will surely die, she says, verse 14, and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises a means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. So basically what she does, I mean, she tries to you know, make David here almost feel all the more guilty in regards to it. She uses this illustration. She says, we're all going to die one day like water spilled out on the ground. Now, in, in that climate, if you spilled water in the, the arid climate of the Middle East, that water's gone. I mean, it just it, it's, it disappears instantaneously. And the idea of any purpose or use of that water has been lost now. And she's saying, listen, David, in the same way, there's a window right now for you to reconcile with your son. There's still an opportunity for you to reestablish relationship with him and to extend forgiveness and to work through what's happened. But she's saying, just like water that falls on the ground, David, if you're not careful, you may lose the opportunity forever to have a relationship with your son again. And David, if you don't act and you pass up this opportunity that God has set before you to do what you can in this situation to bring resolution, she's saying just like water spilled on the ground, she says you may never, ever, ever have an opportunity to get restoration. You may lose the opportunity and it may never be returned to you. It may be lost forever. And look, I think there's a part of that that it's wise for us to take into consideration because sometimes... There are windows of opportunity that we need to capitalize on. And if we don't, sometimes because of the hardness of human hearts and the way people can be, we can potentially sometimes jeopardize losing the opportunity to salvage maybe a friendship or, or to resolve a family issue or to restore in some way something that's been damaged because we fail to act when the opportunity is still available. And so she says, David, be careful you need to do something. Even God, she says, would devise a means to bring people back. That's the heart of God. Restoration, she's saying. Reconciliation. God devises means so that banished ones are not expelled but restored. And again, certainly look at verse 14. What a great description of ultimately what God does in the work of Jesus. God devised a means to bring banished sinners, those who've been separated from God, back to himself. God did it in a just way, though. He took all the guilt and the penalty upon himself so that we could be restored to him. So almost sort of a picture of the gospel right there in the end of verse 14 as she's making this declaration. So verse 15, she goes on saying, Therefore I've come to speak of this thing to my Lord the King because the people have made me afraid. And your maidservant said, I will now speak to the King and maybe the King will perform the request of his maidservant for the King will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, the word of my Lord, the King will now be comforting for as the angel of God, so is my Lord, the King in discerning good and evil and may the Lord, your God be with you. So she, you know, adds a little flattery in there. <laughs> David, yours wise as an angel of God, you can discern good and evil. And I just, I mean, I'm just throwing this out there, David. She kind of, you know, kind of, softens it at the end here you know she's just rebuked him to his face called him a hypocrite 
And then she says, but you know, I mean, at the end of the day, David, I mean, who is wise like you in Israel? I mean, certainly you're like an angel of God. God's going to be with you and you'll discern between good and evil. Verse 18, the king answered and said to the woman, please do not hide from me anything that I ask you. And she said, please, my Lord, the king speak. So the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? I mean, right away, he just kind of discerns. I mean, who would be as brazen as this to come in here with this parable and this plot and this whole act to get me to, and, and he says, this, this is, because I think Joab had probably tried to persuade David and David didn't listen. So he realizes where this has come from. So the woman said, as you live, my Lord, the king, no one can turn to the right hand or the left from anything my Lord, the king has spoken for your servant, Joab commanded me. She said, I was put up to this. And he put all these words in my mouth of your maidservant to bring about this change of affairs. That's what Joab wanted to do. He wanted to bring about a change of affairs. Good intention. I mean, kind of a, a, a sneaky way to go about it, but good intention. He, he wants to see reconciliation in a family. I mean, I think it's not a bad thing. Certainly give a little bit of credit to Joab here. Just kind of a, a strange way he went about it to trick David. But my Lord is wise according to the wisdom of the angel of God to know everything that is in the earth. And the king then, notice, he, he stops dialoguing with her. He now turns right to Joab. I think Joab is probably there the whole time, probably watching this going, thinking, it's working, it's working, it's working. You know? so, so David just turns to him, right to Joab, and he says, all right, I've granted this thing, probably because he hadn't granted it yet. So he's, look, I, I'm giving you what you want. I'm granting it to you. Go, therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell to the ground on his face, bowed himself, and he thanked the king. He was appreciative that David finally came to this place. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him return to his own house. Watch this. But do not let him return do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. Now, again, this is very unusual. You would think if David's heart was really in this, again, he's been separated from his son for how long? Three years. All this pain and heartache and tragedies happened in this family. It wasn't dealt with for two years. And then the murder happened to, to make it worse. And now for another three years, he hasn't seen or spoken to or talked to his son Absalom. And you would think David would say, all right, Joab, I'm bringing him home. Suit up my chariot. Get everything ready. I'm going to get my son and bring him home. But instead, what does David do? He sends in a very cold way, Joab to go get him. He says, go get him and bring him back. And by the way, when he comes back, I don't want to see his face. He can live back in the land. He can be nearby the capital and the capital city, but, but I don't want to see his face. That's as far as I'm going to go, and, and he's going to have to, to live where he is separated. So you can tell there's still something in David's heart that hasn't been resolved. He's not willing to completely open himself to complete forgiveness and restoration. And again, these things contribute, no doubt, to what we'll see happen next time in our, our chapter with Absalom ultimately just totally rebelling against his father because he's so embittered. 
Let's look at a few more verses and we'll close. It says, Now in all Israel there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. So this guy was GQ, the Bible's trying to tell us. I mean, just an incredibly good-looking guy, Absalom was. Not a blemish on him from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And when he cut the hair of his head, at the end of every year, he did an annual haircut. And the reason is because his hair was so thick and, you know, just beautiful, thick, gorgeous type hair. The, the weight of his hair and his head was 200 shekels according to the king's standard. Now, that's about five pounds. So, this guy, look, I have no problem with an annual haircut. What I do find awkward is, why do you weigh it afterwards? I mean, there's something a little vain about that. I mean, you want to get your hair cut once a year. I just picture this black, flowing, you know, gorgeous hair. and you get, but, but five pounds of hair, well, I understand why. Because, you know, after two years, that's 10 pounds of hair, 15 pounds of hair. I mean, you're going to have neck and back issues. But again, just indicating to us this incredibly good-looking man that Absalom was. And because of this, Absalom becomes a very charismatic, winsome-type personality. And kind of like the next version of Saul, the first king of Israel. He's kind of the people's guy. And we'll see that he begins to steal the hearts of the people because he's very good looking. And, and again, he's a ladies man. He's beautiful in appearance and charismatic and smooth in the way that he handles himself. He knows how to work the crowds and, and win people over to himself. He's impressive in that way. And to Absalom were also born three sons. One daughter whose name was Tamar after his sister who had happened with the tragedy. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. And look at verse 28. And Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face. So I want you to notice something. He's banished for three years. David brings him back home, saying that he's willing to offer restoration and forgiveness as he gave his word. And for two more years now, so for five years, there's still not been one word spoken between David and his son. For five years, this wall of separation is still up in between these two. And again, what a sad thing that we see going on here. And again, some of the mistakes that David is making, and we'll see unfolds into more problems. David brings him back home, but again, he never addresses anything. He never expects repentance from Absalom. Let me just say, listen, I don't care whether you're emotionally led or not. The reality is, if there's not genuine repentance in Absalom's heart, then you're overlooking something that needs to be addressed. This guy murdered somebody. This guy caused havoc in the family. This needs to be addressed. So there's no repentance in Absalom's heart. There's no change. And in a process of restoration and reconciliation, we have to address what happened. There needs to be repentance. And when someone is not held accountable for their sin and error, it only fuels pride and more unhealthy things. And here, basically, David takes a step toward forgiveness, but he's really not willing to go the whole way. Because for five years now, they still don't have any dialogue with each other. And, and listen, when we are willing to commit to obeying the Lord to offer forgiveness and reconciliation and relationships... We have to be willing to commit to go the whole way. Not to say, okay, I'll forgive him, I'll, I'll pardon him and bring him back, but I don't want to see their face. You can bring him back, but I don't want anything to do with him. I mean, I forgive you, but don't talk to me anymore. 
That's not real forgiveness. Genuine biblical forgiveness is you relate to someone like it never happened. That's how God forgives. God's forgiveness is he treats us like our sin never happened. He relates to us like the offenses and things we've done between him and us have never taken place. That's biblical forgiveness. And if we're going to commit to forgiveness, we have to commit fully to forgiveness. Push past our awkward feelings and do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Because that doesn't happen, we'll see things just fester and get worse in this family life. Let's stand. Let's pray together.